Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. So Podgo is the easiest way for you to, to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space. So you always know how much you're going to get, right? So apply today, you become a member and you can start reading ads, you know, as soon as you get accepted and you get paid, you get paid a flat rate within 24 hours. So make sure to check out podgo.co, that's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And uh, be sure to add our podcast in the how did you hear about Podgo section of the application. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Welcome back, everybody, to the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you to episode number 42, where today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Steinberg, our quantum mechanics professor from our second year of university. I think uh, we've mentioned this class a lot. This might sound a little cheesy, but I also think we have said very explicitly that this was one of the most interesting courses we've ever had at this university, just because of the concepts, you know, the ideas that were taught to us, just so interesting. And I really appreciate it. So Parker, what do you think? Definitely. Yeah, it was also one of my favorite courses. And, you know, I understand that we only saw the concepts at a basic level. And so for Christmas, I actually asked to get a couple of books. <laughs> but it's QED by Richard Feynman and uh, Quantum by Manjit Kumar. So I'm going to have a good read over the next semester into the summer before we start That's the amazing. follow That's up amazing. course. It's nice to hear uh, such good feedback about the course, but especially that it motivated you to aim your Christmas presents in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear it, and I hope they work out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so Dr. Steinberg, maybe now we can come to a small introduction into, you know, what kind of physicist you are. And I mean, obviously we know, but <laughs> tell the audience, like, what all do you do at U of T? Because I'm not sure, because I know a lot of professors are, you know, professors, they help graduate students, they help doctorate students, and they have a lot of roles. Mm -hmm. So maybe you want to introduce yourself in that manner. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I am an experimental physicist, and I specialize in quantum physics, but particularly atomic, molecular, and optical physics. So I guess when I was hired, I would have described myself as a quantum optics person. Uh, that's one of the names for our AMO physics group, the Atomic Molecular and Optical Physics Group. But I developed more and more of an emphasis on things like quantum information and quantum foundations as time goes on. So basically, we use mm -hmm. the tools of optical and atomic physics to study foundations of quantum mechanics, what quantum mechanics really teaches us about the world and how much of that we can demonstrate, but also how one manipulates information in quantum systems and what information can teach us about the quantum nature of the world, but also what quantum mechanics teaches us about the nature of information. And obviously, these are things that you hear mm -hmm. about from time to time related to technologies uh, like quantum communications, cryptography, and quantum computing. And a lot of what we do, we try to aim at understanding the sorts of things that will feed better into those fields. We don't work on building a quantum computer in my lab, but on things that relate to that and help us devise new sorts of error correction or data compression or quantum logic gates, or even the techniques for characterizing those quantum systems. 
Now, as you said, professors do lots of different huh. things. Obviously, as the two of you know, I, I teach, or at least I, I attempt mm-hmm. to. I, I hope that works out. And as you said, I supervise mm-hmm. graduate students. The way you phrased it, I'd say, is usually more appropriate to something like a, a history professor or maybe a math professor than a physics professor. Rather than saying that I help doctoral students I would say that uh, I rely on the doctoral students uh, to do the research that, that we're doing, especially in experiment, right? You know, I describe myself mm-hmm. as an experimental physicist uh, when I was a grad student and postdoc, and maybe for the first year of my professorship, I was working in the lab. Um, and by now, what I do is really supervise a bunch of experiments and help my students design and create and build and maintain these experiments and then analyze them. Um, but in physics, it's very much, and especially in experimental physics, the graduate students who are really doing the day-to-day research. And if we talk more about the research later on, the work I'll be describing is, is stuff that I like to think I've guided and in some cases spearheaded, but that was really done by the remarkable group of students that we've got at UFD. That's amazing. So can you tell us about the first time where you knew that physics is what you wanted to do, or the first uh, maybe idea that sparked in your head that said, wow, this is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back far enough that it, it's almost something that I, I spent 10 years trying to escape before I convinced myself that no, that, 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 that really was it. It was my, my destiny. <laughs> my dad was an electrical engineer, so I sort of you know grew up hearing about scientific kinds of stuff. And in retrospect, I can see back then that our different perspectives already meant I was not going to be an engineer, but something like a physicist. He would try to explain to me simple concepts of electric circuits. And, you know, I I like knowing how you could build something. Mm -hmm. But the way that a real engineer works, where, you know, they want to know how can I buy a chip that does all these things, that never interested me because I wanted to know what was inside the chip. And I wanted to know how the transistor worked. And I wanted to know why the electrons did what they, they did. And one of my early memories about that was him just telling me that uh, electrons were, I don't know, and maybe he was telling me about orbitals and atoms or something like that, but he explained they couldn't be in the same place at the same time. And I asked him why, and he just got so impatient with me. You know, that, that's just the rule. You just, just go with it. And I, I think that was when he gave up on me and pretty much lost interest. You know, even years later, he would visit our labs and he would just love looking at all the equipment. And then he'd ask what in the world we're doing with the equipment. And he would just shake his head at, you know, what a waste of time it, it, it was to ask these abstract questions when we had such fancy equipment that we could use to do something more practical. But honestly, when I began studying it, uh, I, probably like a lot of physicists, you, you ask the answers a little bit embarrassing. It's that I was a Star Trek fan. I wanted to know wow. what would you have to do to, you know, build a spaceship and build a star fleet. And <laughs> with a friend, we used to come up with plans for, you know, what this fleet would be like. And this I also remember well, that someone told me at some point that there was a a real complication to how you land a spacecraft. And they went into some sorts of details. But uh, I asked probably at that point my stepfather about it. And he said, oh, I I can't answer these questions for you. For that, uh, you need to learn calculus, which was a great way of getting rid of me. So I I spent a summer reading a calculus made easy book. (laughs) By the end of the book, I realized I still have no idea how you'd have to land a spacecraft. And he said, oh, maybe it's not really calculus. Maybe it's physics. And I don't even think I knew what physics was at that point. But but from that point on, I started trying to study physics when I could. Wow. Uh, What really kind of cemented my path, I think, was um, years later reading, again, some kind of science fiction book, actually a really weird book, 
that brought up ideas about Schrodinger's cat and entanglement and so forth. And crazy book, but it actually had a glossary that explained a lot of its concepts. And in the glossary, it even explained what Bell's theorem was uh, and talked about our last space experiments, which years later, I realized how remarkable it was because this book must have been published a few years after Alain Aspe did his Bell Inequality experiments, and these science fiction authors were already using it and explaining yeah. it. But the way they described entanglement and Bell's inequalities, they said something like, once two particles have interacted, they remain forever connected, no matter how far apart you take them. And, you know, these days I would take issues with, with the detail of that phrasing. But the idea that you could even think to prove such a thing, and what it would take to prove it, just mystified me. And from that moment on, and again, I was probably 13 or something at the time, I was just reading a, a book, I was just driven to take a quantum mechanics course as soon as I could to find out yeah. where do they get these these wild ideas. And I've, I've pretty much been stuck ever since. <laughs> so that was your goal from the beginning was to go directly to quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, I already... I liked physics fine, the way you like solving puzzles or whatever. And I would solve the, you know, blocks rolling down the inclined planes. And I liked the fact that I could get the right answer. But honestly, I couldn't care less about blocks rolling down the <laughs> inclined planes. You know, I, I wanted to know about the atom. I wanted to know what the world is made of. You know, like like most people, I guess, who go on to study physics, I thought more in terms of particle physics at the time. And, you know, I'd watch TV specials explaining about quarks and gluons and i i wanted to know what was next and i wanted to know about black holes mm -hmm. um but the thing that really stuck with me was not you know which particles are made of which other particles that's zoology or botany at some level it's what are the rules that, that governs all of it and as time went on i learned that was really quantum mechanics and did you always want to become an experimentalist were you maybe kind of leaning into the theorist side and then you're like hey maybe this is not for me or something like that or was it always experimental no i um i don't think i had a strong view of that early on i mean i i don't know how much you guys know or think about that distinction at, at this stage right when i was a second year undergraduate i probably didn't think about it very much mm -hmm. and you know i guess i was one of these people who was good at math by high school standards but not necessarily by the standards of physics majors at a, at a good university. I was fine at it, but I, mm -hmm. I can't say I mm -hmm. enjoyed just like struggling through integrals and so forth. And at some point I thought about it, and I guess I had this image of what it would be like to be a theorist. And, you know, as much as mm -hmm. I would love to solve the riddle of quantum gravity or, or what have you, I tried to picture what would you do day to day as a theorist waiting for that inspiration and maybe I just didn't have enough good role models, but I, I just didn't see what I would do staring at that blank blackboard, wondering what to do. Whereas I kind of understood what you would do day to day, you know, between inspirations as an experimentalist, that you're really just trying to do something concrete while waiting for the next idea. But again, a lot of it has to do with role models and also with timing. And I think mm -hmm. this is something you'll see no matter what, but there are many different paths you could follow and who knows which one you will take. But the people you meet along the way and the people who mentor you are going to be a big part of that. And I'm sure I could have wound up doing other things. But the guy who was the director of undergraduate studies when I was an undergrad, so like, you know, as a shy student who didn't really approach my professors much, the guy I had to go to once a term to get him to sign my schedule was really outgoing. And, you know, honestly, like most physicists, if you asked him, what are you working on? You'd get a two hour response, no matter who you were. He just was so excited about it. And he was a great teacher and a great researcher. And I ended up doing my <laughs> senior thesis with him. 
and he taught me about a lot of what was going on in the late 80s in um, atomic molecular and optical physics. He told me about laser cooling and the fact that you could cool and trap individual atoms. He told me about the fact that the electromagnetic vacuum could have physical effects on these cold atoms. Um, he taught me about time reversal symmetry and the fact that you could use spectroscopy on atoms to look for evidence of the fact that the universe is not time reversal symmetric or mirror reversal symmetric. And these are the kinds of deep issues that I wanted to keep studying. So I think it was largely his influence uh -huh. that made me think of that. Mm -hmm. um, years later, when I started getting interested in quantum information, I realized if I'd been an undergraduate or a starting graduate student in those days, there's a good chance that that would have grabbed me, that there are so many deep questions there and problems that were ripe for being tackled, you know, almost like being in the early days of quantum mechanics, where, you know, in, in 1928, if you had learned quantum mechanics, you just would say, here's, here's a problem no one's been able to solve before. Let me try it with quantum mechanics. And if you were reasonably good at it, I think there was just a lot of so-called low-hanging <laughs> fruit. Um, and part of me feels that way about, about quantum information. And, uh, you know, maybe the, mm -hmm. the early, somewhat easier stuff, all the, the pioneering work has already been done, uh, but there's still so much out there. So uh, starting out these days, I'd be more torn between theory and experiment yeah. than when I was making the choice. And, you know, a lot of theorists were just either striving to go off and do string theory, where, you know, 99 people out of 100 never even get a job <laughs> or maybe just doing really, really detailed calculations that I didn't see the interest in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's evolved. I think, you know, it's not really what you asked, but, but to give a, a kind of bit of uh, unwarranted advice, I'll say that people often think of the most exciting aspects of a career and the biggest questions you can ask and what happens on, you know, the best day of your year. And that's not what life is about. You know, life is, is also about the day to day. So, you want to be working on something where the big questions excite you, but you can yeah. do that in many different fields. You also want to work on something where you have what it takes to get through the hard times and where you're going to enjoy the struggles. True. And I think the point is there that are some true. people who really enjoy fighting with recalcitrant equipment, even if the question doesn't matter to them. And there are people who really enjoy staying up until six in the morning doing some coding even if, you know, it's just to write a video game. And there are people who really enjoy solving mm -hmm. an integral just because they get caught up in the, the abstract mathematical thought. And the question is, you know, where are your talents and where does your patience lie also? Oh, wow. That was, uh, that was pretty deep, deep conversation for sure. Uh, thank you for that advice. Uh, but one thing I definitely want to ask before we move forward, uh, the picture on, the back, on your background. Yeah. Was that chosen for a reason? Because mm. that maybe looks like an experimental team or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's part of my team. Lab okay. taken under, under COVID, as you can see from the picture. So yeah, that was, yeah. We're basically not getting together in the lab these days. For, for mm -hmm. quite a while, the lab was shut down entirely. And now we're, we're basically allowing one person on an experiment with full social distancing rules. Mm -hmm. uh, behind you is our Bose condensate apparatus, uh, oh, wow. okay. where we cool and Bose condense rubidium atoms. So get out of the way, you'll see it better. <laughs> um, oh, wow. It's pretty. And pretty over pretty. there on... Let's see, from left to right on my screen, it's probably right to left on yours. In the uh, red mask, there's yeah. Nick, and then Joseph in a bluish one, and then hidden off in the corner is David, who's now the senior student on that experiment. 
and we were having some vacuum problems and thought we needed to change the rubidium and that's kind mm -hmm. of a complicated delicate operation so that day we all came in together and i thought while wow, we were all there masked up like the lone ranger yeah we needed a photo <laughs> of the team so your entire team is comprised of these three people and you of course or are there more and this is just the experimental part no our, our whole group is primarily experimental uh you know often some of us okay. work on theory papers together only once that i can recall have we had a sort of pure theorist in the group uh, and that was a postdoc who's been helping to supervise some of these experiments but there are about 10 graduate students at the moment but they're split onto roughly four different projects and the Bose condensation project currently has uh, these three graduate students and there's also an undergraduate who's been working with us grace uh, mostly on coding and, and some theoretical stuff normally we we get undergraduates involved in the physical research as well but given these rules about distancing that's just not practical right now so unfortunately we mm -hmm. don't have any undergrads working in the lab Honestly, even for the new graduate students, um, it's a concern what COVID means for these labs because it's the kind of thing you need to learn from one another. There's no way to learn experimental physics except on the job. And you sure. learn to babysit one apparatus that becomes you know, your child. And you have to pick up the ins and outs of that apparatus from the people who've already known it for years. So right now, uh, for a while, that wasn't going on. We just had you know, the senior person on each experiment who knew it best able to come in and work on it. And now, little by little, Joseph, who's uh, number two on this apparatus, has been taking it over, and that's good, but he doesn't know all the ins and outs yet. And there are yeah. things that I'm sure David could do more quickly. It's good, because Joseph's got to learn them anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and he's just you know taking his time to try to figure it out. And David's still around a bit longer to give us the tips when something really hits a stumbling block. Imagine if Joseph and David... Mm -hmm. are listening to this podcast and are like, okay, these are tips for me now. I'm going to improve. I'm not saying anything that, that they wouldn't agree with and, and already know. I'd be, yeah. I'd be pretty circumspect about that. And, and this lab is in the basement of McLennan, right? That's right. So we've, we've got uh, two pretty big rooms in the basement of McLennan. And one of them has traditionally been our atoms lab and the other our photons lab. And in the atoms lab, we have two different laser cooling mm -hmm. experiments this is the more recent one, although I think that still means we started building it in 2001 or something like that. Um, and in fact, you know, although it keeps evolving and each grad student brings their new ideas and technical improvements to the thing, uh, we're all kind of in consensus that it's about time to really refresh and rejuvenate this thing, move on to a next generation. Uh, it recently reached the biggest goal that, that I had set out for it when we started building it. But that goal itself is really only the first step towards a lot of pretty deep questions we'd like to address. And I think we're going to start butting against the limitations of that apparatus. So one of the big tasks for Joseph and or Nick and or whoever joins the group next is going to be either building a completely second apparatus or more likely kind of um, building some stuff in the background and then migrating the experiment little by little to a replacement apparatus. We're going to have to see how that goes. Awesome. By the way, quick note, McLennan for, I don't know, the audience members maybe. Uh, so McLennan Physical Laboratories was our uh, building, our physics building for basically most of our most of our classes. And episode 36, QED, the live episode that Parker and I did, 
the first scene was filmed in McLennan. So just a fact, just a quick fact there. Okay. Yeah, we just did a little introduction there, but yeah, yeah. And do do you know who McLennan was? No. Oh, it was a person. Oh, it's I didn't. Named after a person. Did not know that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm probably going to misspeak. So I don't know. You guys probably weren't at the department holiday party a while ago. They decided to have a trivia game. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I didn't participate too actively because most of the trivia was things like what year was the Department of Physics founded wow. and who founded it and, and so forth. But if I'm not mistaken, McLennan actually kind of founded our physics department. I believe he was the first physics PhD awarded at U of wow. T. And confusingly, oh, wow. that was before the department existed. So he got his PhD and then went on to create the department. <laughs> department. <laughs> but I, I guess, you know, in the 100 years ago, that was that was how things worked. Oh, wow. yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> this next question is, you know, pretty big, pretty general. But if you had to explain to the general audience, right, how quantum mechanics really reshaped our understanding of the universe, what would you say? So, yeah, I mean, you guys know I'm hesitating because that's a big question for me. And I've been talking to, to both of you about it for, for most of the term. Um, and there are different mm -hmm. ways to look for at sure. it. But, yeah, I, mm -hmm. I would say that unlike most physical theories that just say, oh, things don't really behave the way you thought. You know, they, they actually all fall at the same rate. Or, you know, stars are actually other suns or things like that. To understand quantum mechanics, you end up having to change your view of what it means to picture the real world, what a description of reality would be. And not just, as people often say, descriptions of really small things or atoms or electrons, but of everything. There, there's just no way to make the quantum mechanical theory of atoms consistent with a kind of more classical, you know, Aristotelian or Newtonian or, or whatever view of mm -hmm. rocks and planets and you and me. And I really think that's different from, you know, learning, hey, what do you know? Light is made of electric and magnetic fields. That really changed how we thought about light, but it didn't change how we thought about anything else. You know, how I think about me and you or, you know, water waves or, or anything. So to me, there's something more deeply philosophical about what we learn from quantum mechanics. How, how to best put it, I guess, you know, the, the most popularized aspects of it are not 100% accurate. One of them is randomness. And although, you know, again, I've discussed with you guys the subtleties of that, we don't have any proof that the world is random. The most natural way to look at the theory of quantum mechanics does make it look like there's randomness fundamental to the laws of physics. And that's, that's certainly a big change. And even if you don't take that interpretation and try to look at it differently, there's something in there that, that changes, that things I used to describe definitely, you know, the moon is definitely there, the earth is definitely here. Quantum mechanics says you can't really describe things like that. If nothing else, particles are described by wave functions, which means that they have uncertainty. And I think from the modern viewpoint, especially driven by everything we've learned from quantum information, that would be one of the big things to say that the information about the world is a different thing according to quantum mechanics than you would have thought according to our classical intuitions. And the most complete description that we think is possible of things in the world is still a description that leaves some uncertainty. And that's pretty striking. And that's the kind of thing I was alluding to before. How could you know such a thing? How could you ever know that your description is incomplete, right? It's one thing to say, I don't have all the information. It's another to say it's impossible to have all the information. And more and more people think that's what quantum mechanics teaches us. And again, that's not something that can be proved, but mm -hmm. even if you sidestep it, it deeply changes the way you have to think about reality.
so the, the way I always explain it is that um, classically, there's some way of describing the state of a system. You look at a pool table and you see where all the billiard balls are. And I just tell you, where is each ball? How fast is it moving? That's a complete description of what's going on. And to me, what quantum mechanics has taught us is that the description of any system involves making a list of every possible kind of classical state it could have and saying every one of those has a kind of weight to it, something like a probability. And to describe what the world is doing, I need to give you that whole list of weights for all the things that could be happening, tell you how likely they are to be happening. And again, as you know, on the technical side, how likely isn't sufficient. But to the layperson, I, I'd say that that kind of gets the idea across. You don't say the cat's alive or dead. You say, how likely is it to be alive? How likely is it to be dead? Right. And that's the right description of what the cat is doing. So how satisfied are you personally? This is a very a completely opinionated question. How satisfied are you with accepting this view of reality that some things are just impossible to know? The main reason I bring this up is because I was watching a video on Richard Feynman. I forget what it's called, but it's one of like the Richard Feynman interviews. And he was basically kind of expressing how, you know, he enjoys the fact that there are some things that we simply cannot know. And he's okay with it. Are you sure he said that? Or just some things that we don't know? Yeah, I, I promise on an interview, he was like, Okay, I, I can't quote him, but I can definitely link the video in the description below. But I can't bring it up right now because I forget which one it was. <laughs> so my question is basically, are you satisfied? Yeah, I don't know, but that's, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Please do send me the, the link later. I, I'd be surprised from him to say that. Certainly, you know, I'm, I'm not only am I satisfied with there being things we don't know, but that's what makes science mm -hmm. fun. That's what True. makes science interesting. It is the quest for, for new things. And, you know, again, something you don't necessarily appreciate while you're taking courses, although by this stage, hopefully you, you, you do and you certainly should, is that science is not about learning lists of facts and learning the rules that we already understand. It's learning how to progress beyond them, how to ask new questions and, and answer those. And I think it's a fascinating, you know, again, philosophical question of whether there are things we could never know or could never understand. You know, there are people out there who say, there is an ultimate theory, but it's probably just beyond us. And I'm not sure what I think about that, whether whether I think that the human ability to abstract things is so powerful that in principle, nothing is beyond that ability, or whether that's hubristic and there really are clearly things that would always be outside of human capability. You know, obviously, there are things that are just too much for any individual human to understand. Um, but the great thing about that is, by now, there's almost no one who understands all of the workings of the laptop that I'm on right now. But it doesn't matter. People get the big picture, the chunk, and you know mm -hmm. there are emergent phenomena. Exactly. As for this quantum idea, that maybe that's just how the world is, it no longer bothers me at all. Uh, again, you know, I don't like jumping to conclusions. I, I wouldn't want someone to tell me we know that you can't have all the information uh, because I don't think they've proved that. If they proved it to me then I'd say, okay, that's that's fine. I'm no longer so disturbed by it. My tendency, this might just be common to experimentalists who, who have this need for a real visualizable picture of what's out there, is rather to say that you could, in principle, have a complete description of the world. You mm -hmm. could, in principle, imagine writing down the wave function for the universe. And when people say that's incomplete, 
it's because they have the wrong idea of what a description should look like, right? They're, they're trying to ask, where is every electron in the universe? And to me, that then just becomes a misuse of language, that we're used to this classical way of seeing the world, but that's not really what the universe is, is, is like. It would be like asking, is the universe a nice guy? It's just a stupid question. The universe isn't a guy. It's not described by the emotional adjectives that I apply to human beings. <laughs> and similarly, when I ask where are all the electrons in the world, I'm using the language that I use to describe, you know, pebbles in front of me on the beach. And it's just the wrong concept, the wrong language. I think when I was a student, that was kind of a modern way of thinking to really picture the wave function as a real thing that could be out there. And as I've gotten older, I think it's become less modern. And by now, I think uh, the people who really pioneered a lot of these quantum information ideas and those who moved on to work in foundations that I have the most respect for, uh, I think they see my viewpoint as old fashioned. And they would say, no, actually, Bohr was closer to the truth. And, and the wave function is really only about information. It's only a description of what we can say about the universe. And it's not something that's really out there. But this is one of the debates that's so interesting, and it goes on now, and people write papers about what the consequences would be of interpreting the wave function as a real thing in the world, or interpreting mm -hmm. it as just a description of information. You know, more and more right now, it's trendy to try to understand quantum mechanics through this lens of information. So maybe I should back up, um, as I've told you guys, yeah. but, but not necessarily your, your audience, one of the things that distinguishes quantum mechanics from a lot of other theories in physics, like the theory of relativity, is that it's not like Euclid's elements. It doesn't begin from some postulates and then derive things from that. Um, special relativity, you say, let's make these two assumptions and see where they lead us, and they lead to the entire theory. And quantum mechanics was just built up as this house of cards to support you know, what we saw experimentally. And in retrospect, you can go back and say, okay, I could build it from these three or four foundations and call them axioms. But the axioms weren't designed because of any philosophical ideas or even any experiment that showed us, you know, that axiom has to be the case. And a lot of people feel like we'd understand the world better if we had the right set of axioms. If we said, oh, the reason quantum mechanics is true is because the universe mm -hmm. wants to be like yeah. A, B, and C. And we don't know what the right, you know, elegant set of axioms is. So many people now have this intuition, and it's nothing more than an intuition, that information theory, uh, the power of quantum mechanics for treating information, might be a better way to do that. Uh, there have been a lot of interesting speculations about how you could write information theoretic axioms that would get you a lot of the, uh, the underpinnings of quantum mechanics. But it's still a work in progress, and as I say, it might not lead anywhere. It's just mm -hmm. how people like looking wow. at the theory. Yeah. So I think now we have come to the point where this question had to be asked. And we also talked about it before the episode. Quantum computing. So quantum computing, I think, is the most searched up quantum topic maybe mm -hmm. on Google for a long time because I think especially right now, you know. Well, you can't trust Google. They've invested so much in it that, of course, when you search there. <laughs> that is also true. That is also true. Maybe that's not the best source. But what I'm trying to say is it's a very popular topic with a lot of people. So I guess, I mean, I think I, I, I don't know too much about quantum uh, computing. I will not lie. But I believe that they have to exist in 
very cold temperatures, correct? Not necessarily. Like near absolute zero, correct? I think it, it depends on the architecture. Most of them do involve okay. uh, low temperatures. It's certainly true that, you know, yes. what we mean by low temperature is getting rid of, you know, random motion noise. Exactly. So most exactly. physical systems that you want to control accurately need to be at some kind of low temperature. But whether that's low compared to room temperature or low compared to the surface mm -hmm. of the sun or low compared to liquid helium depends on the details of the system. So honestly, mm -hmm. although one way or another, yes, you need to make the system well controlled. What that means in terms of a practical temperature depends on what you build the computer out of. Even a lot of the best classical computers used to have to operate at cryogenic temperatures. Wow, I didn't know that. So the, okay. the reality is we don't know how to build a quantum computer right now. We have a lot of different ideas mm -hmm. for things that could, in principle, build quantum computers. And mm -hmm. uh, we've made a lot of progress on several of those architectures. And there are a lot of companies as well as university and government researchers out there around the world doing this. Which one will be the best, either in the short term or in the longer term, we don't know. And the answers to those two questions might be different, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we used to build computers out of vacuum tubes, and that was great. And once we learned how to do it out of transistors, that was even better. And we learned how to do it out of other kinds of transistors that we now incorporate in chips, that's even better. Similarly, I, I think it's very, very likely that we'll build some small-scale but still useful quantum computers over the next 10 to 20 years that let's say maybe rely on ion traps and maybe in you know 50 years, no one will be using ion traps anymore. They will have found some way to do it with Majoranas or with electrons floating on helium or something that's just much more scalable mm -hmm. that no one's even thought of yet. For a while, it's likely that these technologies will coexist and some may have different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you know, that, that again is also true classically, even though our classical digital computers now I'll use basically the, the same ideas. Uh, there are different paradigms, right? There, there's, there's serial and there's parallel computing, if, if nothing else. Um, but for a long time, there was analog computing. Mm -hmm. And some applications, there still is analog computing. And I'd say similarly with, with quantum information, there are ideas that are kind of closest to digital computing, just a quantum analog of classical digital computing that are mostly what people talk about. Um, but those might be the hardest to achieve. And there are other approaches that kind of look a little more like doing a simulation or an analog that I think are going to be very, very powerful for certain applications. So at least for, for a while, it's likely that we'll have both. Maybe that's even true in the long term. Do you ever see a quantum laptop, like a laptop that, you know, runs on qubits, like a quantum processor? What do you think? I personally don't. Okay. It's a it's a worthwhile question and people ask these questions. You know, you've probably seen these quotes from a, I, I forget who it was, a CEO of IBM, might have even been Watson. I, I I don't know who said he foresees, you know, a market for five or six computers in the United States one day. <laughs> um, so you know, it's it's dangerous to be too pessimistic about these things. The thing with quantum computers is that they're not fundamentally a new way of building computers that just speeds up the process that you guys already understand when you think about computing. It's really a different approach to dealing with information. Mm -hmm. And we've determined that there are some particular little applications where we know that would be at least a little bit faster than any possible classical approach. I don't mean faster in real time because they're physically different devices. So one might have a higher clock speed than the other, but that the number of steps required would scale better on the quantum device. 
Um, and then there are a lot of applications where it's not provable because we don't really know the limits on classical computing. But if you trust the expectations most computer scientists have, there'd be a huge advantage, an exponential advantage to the quantum device as you get to larger and larger problems. So one of the things a lot of people are trying to do is to figure out what's the range of problems for which that would be useful. And there are a handful of problems where we know that it seems to be useful. And many, many problems that people work on day to day where I just don't see why it would make a difference to do it quantum mechanically. So my expectation is that there's always going to be a trade-off that to make a system well controllable quantum mechanically may involve cooling or, or other things, but that's going to have some extra cost, whether it's a financial cost, an energy cost, a space cost, or just a trade-off in the clock rate. It's going to mean that unless there's a reason to do it, you wouldn't want to bother. So what I could picture is that one day our laptops will all have quantum coprocessors so that when you need to call an algorithm that quantum mechanics is known to be better for, like every time you need to, you know, break someone's credit card, <laughs> good to use quantum mechanics for that, uh, then it'll, it'll call the quantum processor and, and do that. You know, the same way that we used to have floating point coprocessors and now we have graphics processors and so on and so forth. And even processes that are kind of optimized for doing certain deep learning tasks. Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. It's not like a, a replacement for what we have now, but just a supplement, so to speak. That's the way I see it. I don't see any good reason to replace most things we do now, as long as you're just doing kind of sequential operations. You know, you're doing word processing or, or even if you're doing graphics or something like that, um, I don't immediately see the reason. Now, I could believe there's stuff you would do in the background quantum mechanically that could even speed up graphics. But one of the tricks is that what a quantum computer does is it makes use of this insane richness of the amount of information in a quantum state to have more paths that it can take to go from the input to the output. If you think of the job of a computer as marching along from input to output, the funny thing is that there's no difference in the size of the input or the size of the output that you get classically or quantum mechanically. So even though people like to say, oh, quantum systems can be in many states at the same time, so the, the quantum computer is solving many different problems in parallel, the fact is there's this bottleneck at the output. It can't give you any more information at the end of the day than the classical computer would have. So if you have, you know, you want to program some 3D graphics on your 20 megapixel display, uh, it's not as though you can use you know, 30 quantum bits and say, oh, 30 quantum bits, that stores 100 million complex numbers. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you have 30 bits coming out. You can't fill up your display with it. And if you want to fill up the display, you still need your 20 million bits. The question is, do you want to do some processing along the way where you're willing to throw out the intermediate steps and you still have that same amount of output at the end, but the acrobatics you needed to go through to get it just took up more space than you had in the classical system. That's, that's kind of where the, the quantum thing can be useful. So for most tasks, I, I, I just don't see it. But one of the big questions now is whether for things like mm -hmm. optimization, uh, serious quantum capabilities offer an advantage. And there are a lot of different ways I could mean that question. And there are a lot of different perspectives on the answer. But yeah, it, it does make it seem to me like most likely it will supplement abilities. And whether it supplements them in a way that's going to be useful on your laptop or mine, I don't know yet, but it's conceivable. 
the idea that it could provide abilities that are important in certain niche applications, like doing quantum chemistry, which is important for drug discovery and materials research or basic physics research for that matter, uh, that currently seems very, very likely. And a lot of companies are banking on the idea that different kinds of quantum computers might just help with miscellaneous optimization problems. And again, that's possible, but I think the evidence is still less strong, except in a few cases. Like, you know, there, there, was, there, there are a few famous problems you may have heard of. Um, there's the traveling salesman problem. People who read a little bit about computer science like to hear this one. If I give you a list of cities, I show you where they are on a map, and I say your job is to deliver packages to all of them as quickly as possible, draw the fastest route that connects every one of these cities. It turns out the time it would take to solve that problem grows exponentially with the number of cities. So our fastest computers cannot find the exact solution for 20 cities. And there are real companies out there spending real money on this because, you know, FedEx and UPS, that's what they do. Mm. Well, it's not what they do, right? They use hubs and so forth. But, you know, they, they do try to solve that kind of optimization problem. Many other problems can be cast into the same form. And again, as far as we know, it's exponentially difficult on a classical computer. But no one's been able to prove that. Tomorrow, someone could turn around and come up with an algorithm that, that breaks that belief. But that would stun most of the computer science and math worlds. The thing is, almost no one expects that a quantum computer would be able to solve this problem either. What we do is we come up with approximate solutions. And it turns out that classical computers mm -hmm. are already very good at coming up with approximate solutions for that problem. And there are companies like D-Wave that think that their quantum computers are even better. Well, they're, they're a company, so they periodically just say, we know it's better. But if you talk to an academic, you'll realize that's not true. Um, and for a while, a lot of academics were really very dismissive of D-Wave and thought they were being kind of misleading and, and said that, no, it can't do any of this. But in fact, the people who went to study it more closely had a much more balanced and nuanced view at the end and did find certain things where they said, here, it really does seem to be behaving differently from a classical machine. And I can't yet prove to you that it's using that to good advantage, but it is doing something classical and there are certain classes of problems where it seems like it might be faster. Uh, so there are related approaches where, you know, as I said earlier, the, the jury is still out. Do you think that quantum computing with maybe 20 years down the line could be the key to reaching the technological singularity? Because <laughs> that is kind of impending doom on, on the human race and it's just a matter of time before we we get there <laughs> well whether it's doom or paradise i, I don't know and i mm. i certainly don't share mm. your certainty about that singularity i think it's a really amusing idea but um no I, I i tend to find it an unlikely hypothesis for various reasons but even if i took your view that we are heading towards that singularity i wouldn't expect any particular role for for quantum computing there you know, if I wanted to make the case, I could. It's always true. I could say part of what slows us down from the singularity is designing new materials, knowing how to manipulate the world, manipulate matter. That requires quantum mechanical simulations. And one of the things we really know seems to be exponentially difficult on classical devices, but could be done on a quantum computer. And in fact, the idea that led Feynman to sort of propose the idea of quantum computers is to simulate other quantum systems. So you could imagine that these, you know, these uh, artificial intelligences that are out there trying to design new technologies and create them faster and faster would need that materials aspect of it. But I think that's a far-fetched 
<laughs> okay, so uh, I think we can just continue talking. So now I think that quantum computing definitely uh, got some sense into your ideas and your opinion on it. And I think that was a very that was a very interesting opinion because I I kind of thought that maybe like similar to Parker that you know quantum computing might have some role for this quote unquote singularity, but maybe not. You know who knows who knows. So one question that I had was I was reading some of your publications and I was reading this one where you were measuring particles tunneling through a barrier and you were measuring the time spent by atoms in certain excited states in this barrier, right? So I don't know if this is a valid question, but how would you measure such an interval of time? Because I guess if you have that apparatus, like in your background, I guess you can maybe <laughs> see, you know, the particle states or something. I'm not sure. Maybe have some observation. Yeah. But how would you measure the time interval that goes along with that? That's kind of my question. It's a, it's a harder question than maybe you know. I mean, the experiment we did was to measure this, this tunneling time, which we happen to do with rubidium atoms. Okay. Which has been a topic of debate for 90 years or something like that. And I would say a big part of the reason it led to such long debate is that the question of how much time does something take is actually a really tough question to define. You know, even even classically, I would say time has a very strange character classically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I forget who it was, maybe even Augustine or someone like that, who, who said, uh, if, if you if you ask me what time is, I don't know. If you don't ask me, I know. <laughs> and it, it turns out that depending on exactly what you mean by measuring a time, you can get different answers. And some people interpreted that to mean the question is meaningless. Uh, I don't tend to go that way. I, I would instead say we just need to learn how to be more quest more careful about these questions. And uh, there are different things that we can mean by the concept of time. Let's learn to be careful about which is which and how you'd ask each of them. But I'll say in passing that the nature of time has remained one of the deepest questions in, in physics. Forget about how long this particular process takes. Why are there three spatial dimensions, at least, and only one time dimension? Why do we all move in one direction in time? Why can we ask where something is in space, but not ask where it is in time? Um, right? Everything has one position at a given time, but it doesn't necessarily only have one time at a given position. These are deep questions. Why is there an arrow of time at, at all? In our particular experiment, we took what, what I guess I, I would like to describe as an Einsteinian viewpoint, that when you, you ask questions, you need to think about what it means in practice to ask that question, to ask how far apart are two objects. You've got to think, what does it mean to measure how far apart they are? Otherwise, it has no meaning if, if it's just you know angels on the head of a pin. So time is what a clock measures. And for our experiment, we wanted to know how long atoms spent in a given region. So we decided the individual atoms should carry their own stopwatches. And we'd set it up so the stopwatch only ticked when the particle was in the region of interest. And as I said, that's one way of defining what we mean. I think that's a well-defined question, but there are others you could ask. And, uh, you know, how does a clock work? A clock generally relies on some cyclical evolution, right? The Earth going around the sun mm -hmm. uh, or the Earth rotating on its axis, right? Those were the original clocks. And from that, we learned how to make pendula and things like that. And then, you know, needles that turn around on dials. And there are a lot of different quantum mechanical proposals for how you would define a clock quantum mechanically. Some of them invented to help people build experiments like ours. 
and others just to address the question, you know, what is the nature of time quantum mechanically? People just wondering what would happen if I defined a quantum mechanical clock. Uh, in our case, we, we took basically the simplest thing that can spin. We, we took something that looks like a needle that can point in different directions in space. And uh, you know that's you know, the angular momentum vector of a particle or the spin vector of a particle. If you put a charged particle with angular momentum in a magnetic field, it processes the same way that a, a gyroscope processes under the influence of gravity. And we know that rate of precession, so we can use that as a clock. In our case, we used a, a funny pair of states of the atom, but it's kind of an analog to this magnetic picture. In fact, they're the same states that people would use to build an atomic clock. Atomic clocks are made generally out of alkali atoms. The official definition of the second is cesium, which is down below rubidium on the periodic table, but we make them out of rubidium as well. And in fact, about a decade ago, some of my colleagues in physics, uh, I think principally Kurt Gibble at, uh, at Penn, realized or, or demonstrated that rubidium would have been a much better choice for defining the second than cesium. Mm. Uh, but because of properties of rubidium that no one knew about when they defined it, it was too late. In any case, we use those two states as a, as a kind of clock. And as you surmise, what happens is after the atoms go through the apparatus and get through the tunnel barrier, we can measure the state of the particles. Now, quantum mechanics wow. being what it is, okay. you make a measurement and the state collapses. There are a number of different outcomes you could get, you get one or the other. So in fact, you need to do it over and over again, maybe millions of times in order to get the statistics. And what you find is that you can't measure the angle of the spin, but you can do one measurement where the probability of seeing the atom goes as cos squared theta and another measurement where it goes as sine squared theta. And if you do this measurement over and over again, you can estimate what cos squared and sine squared theta were and figure out what theta must be. And that's kind of how we measure the time. What's more important from my point of view is that since the particles carry their own clocks, we can separate out different groups of particles. And to me, that was what we were getting at here that was, I, I think, a little bit deep and, and addressing what I see as a problem in the way people think about quantum mechanics. Uh, people always tell you what you're not wow. allowed to ask okay. in quantum mechanics, what you're not allowed to measure. I can't know which way the particle went. I can't know how long it spent here. I can't know which slit it went through or whether the cat is alive or dead. And what we've been trying to show in a lot of our experiments is that that view is overly rigid and simplistic. And at least on an approximate or a probabilistic level, there are things that we can learn about a particle and about its past. So we can fire a particle towards a barrier where most of them are reflected, but some are transmitted and ask how long did just the transmitted particles spend in the barrier? And that's a question that, you know, in the textbooks I grew up on would have sounded illegal. That would have been exactly what we were told. Bohr taught us, you can't ask these questions. And what we're trying to show in more and more of our work is you can ask those questions. The answers may not be, you know, black and white, hard, fast, but you can get approximate answers. And there really is a different amount of information I have available about a particle that was transmitted okay, awesome. versus a particle that was reflected. Well, I, I had like a couple of questions I wanted to ask you, but it looks like we're coming up on, you know, close to an hour now. Yeah, I have been over-talking. No, no, awesome. Oh, no, 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 that's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's why you're here, right? To, <laughs> to explain quantum <laughs> mechanics. Yeah, well, it, it's a, you know, what's the term? Professional malady. <laughs> um, 
you know, you make someone a professor and suddenly their job is telling people things all their time. Yeah. And <laughs> then it becomes difficult to shut them up. Yeah. <laughs> Occupational hazard. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we'd love to have you on for another episode where you can ask all the questions we wanted to ask you. But, um, yeah, I think we can end uh, this episode here. Unless, Ray, you had one more thing you wanted to ask. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I mainly just, I really wanted to understand that time. Cause I was like, okay, to be honest, cause <laughs> what I thought, I don't know, this might be really stupid, but because I, I put this in my question, but I said, do you maybe have like a super slow-mo camera <laughs> and like you see the number of frames that it takes for the rubidium atom maybe to cross and then you see the time. I thought maybe you did something like that. <laughs> Clearly that's not quantum mechanical enough. No, no, no. And there, there are things like that you could do. The question is... Oh, you can? Would you expect to see the same thing? Oh. And the answer is no. Okay. I think you'd expect to see something very different if you were really taking the pictures. <laughs> so we're really trying to ask, what was the atom doing when I wasn't looking at it? Because I know that if I looked at it, that would disturb it. Because true, because picture means photon is hitting it. That is true. That is true. Oh, yeah, I guess. I guess picture is the wrong way then. Okay. Yeah, well, that's basically it. So. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. Like I said, I think it's a great initiative what you guys are doing. Thank you. And uh, I wish you great holidays and great luck in your next semester. Thank you so much. Yeah, have a great holiday. And are you teaching next semester as well? I am, as a matter of fact. Uh, same same class? Uh, no, that's as far as I know, at least not offered in the, in the spring, only in the fall and in the summer. Uh, I'll be teaching a class called something like Math and Science in Current Society or Current Topics in Physics. I've actually forgotten the names. It's a JPH course. It's listed as a fourth-year course, although one can certainly take it in third-year as well. It actually is currently designed to fulfill the ethics requirement for physics specialist students. So it's kind of more a course about uh, how, how science is done and how it should be done and what some of the pitfalls are and how it's related to society and what happens in the real world rather than a straight science course but maybe i'll see you guys in it one of these years that sounds fascinating yeah <laughs> yeah all right for our audience if you enjoyed this episode make sure to follow us on spotify or go watch on youtube where this video is being recorded and posted you can ask us any questions in the comments or follow us on instagram at math.physics.podcast or you can send us an email by taking that and adding at gmail.com we will be posting clips as well. We started last week. We started posting clips on YouTube and Instagram and soon on TikTok. Yep, yeah. TikTok. Thank you so much yeah. for listening. And uh, this has been episode number 42 of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we will see you soon. Bye, guys.